The LARB Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show, in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org slash radio hour. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hello, Kate. Hello, Eric, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Hope you had a good one. It was. Well, it sometimes feels like every new year is the same, and honestly, in our (gasps) current situation, I'm happy to just have another year to walk into. Yeah, there you go. Yes, me as well. Although, yeah, I, I still have a kind of childish wish formation every year where I think, oh, this is going to happen. This is different. Mm -hmm. This is fresh. I can't. I'm so cynical about almost everything. But for whatever reason, I really get into that. Like, I am reborn with January 1st. I think that's real, though. It is, at the very least, it's a big way to feel like you're having a complete reset. And, like, I think that there's, like, this sounds almost like Alcoholics Anonymous. Like, you can start any day over again. But it's, like, it does, the beginning of the, like, year does feel like it's time to just clear out everything, start fresh, like, try to clear out the cobwebs in your brain and just, like, see what new things you can tackle this year. Yes, yes, and... As always, every year, I always want to read more. I want to mm-hmm. learn more. Now I need to also focus maybe on some de-stressing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, i got to get <laughs> get into that, getting these cortisol levels down. <laughs> but another thing, you know, I, per our conversation this week, we are speaking with Alicia Kennedy about her book, No Meat Required, The Cultural History and Culinary Future of Plant-Based Eating. And along the New Year's resolutions lines, I have been a vegetarian more or less for the last 20 years or so, but I started to slip during the pandemic when the pandemic first started because I was cooking all the time. I didn't want to cook separately for my son. He does eat meat. And then those chicken sausages started to look kind of appealing. And so I started eating them. And um, But after reading Alicia's book, I felt newly committed to trying to maintain my vegetarianism and uh, being vegan too as much as possible, you know, most of the time when it's convenient. I, I like to be flexed, have the grandma rule where you go to someone's house, you don't deny what they offer you and try to just go along with the flow. But when you're by yourself, when it's all up to you, I do think it's important. And this book makes such a good case for why, I mean, which everyone knows, first and foremost, probably for a lot of people, because it's good for the planet and um, eating meat or raising meat is a huge cause of greenhouse gas emissions. But then also, I think when you get into a lot of the history of why people are vegetarian, I love that this book talks about punks, it talks about eco-feminists, it talks about Rastafarians, it talks about Buddhist monks. It shows you, uh, I think, a little bit more than just like being healthy or being trendy. It has such a deep resonance across the world and not eating meat most of the time is actually normal for most of the world. It's the U.S. that really puts the emphasis on meat. So this, I'm convinced once again. Yeah, that was one of two, I think, really powerful things from this book in my reading experience. You know, one being, like you're saying, the decentering of, like, whiteness from the story of vegetarianism and veganism. So she brings up Dick Gregory, for example, you know, the comedian who had the Bahamian diet that was like very focused on being vegetarian, which I didn't, I had only known about that because of a story I was working on a couple of years ago. And those are the kinds of like buried stories about the vegetarian movement or the vegan movement in the U.S. that I think this surfaces in a really great way. Also responding to what you're saying about your New Year's resolution, that's the other thing I really appreciated about this, that Alicia Kennedy is not a dogmatist and she understands that people, there needs to be some kind of flexibility. Because, you know, what the book opens up with is this great and very real, like, reckoning with the fact that when you decide not to eat meat, 
that is a radical change. And that's going to mean like, you know, you eat differently now than like most of your friends and family members. And so finding ways to be flexible well, as you're saying, committed to the goal of reducing and eventually eliminating your meat consumption is obviously a social, moral, and ethical good. I really appreciated that nuanced approach and also this deep history of the cookbooks that have changed and shaped the dialogue about vegetarianism and veganism in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were some yummy things in here I I wanted to try. Oh, yeah, for sure. Or they mentioned some, uh, especially recipes from the farm in Tennessee, where I've always wanted to go. And also the Bloodroot Cookbook. Yeah, there was oh, also this um, panna cotta, this vegan passion fruit panna cotta that Alicia makes in um, Puerto Rico and San Juan, where she lives, sounded delicious. And I want to try that too. So inspiring. I hope our listeners enjoy and maybe are convinced to cut down or cut out the meat. All right. Well, with that good New Year's resolution energy, let's get into that interview. Great. to be speaking with the writer Alicia Kennedy today. Her writing on food and culture has appeared in publications such as Vox, Slate, The Baffler, and Bon Appetit, and was anthologized in the Best American Food Writing 2023, edited by Mark Bittman. She also writes the popular weekly newsletter from the desk of Alicia Kennedy. She joins us from San Juan, Puerto Rico, where she lives. She's with us to discuss her first book, No Meat Required, The Cultural History and Culinary Future of Plant-Based Eating. The book unpacks the ethical, spiritual, environmental, economic, and political dimensions of vegetarianism and veganism. It traces the emergence of meatless eating in the U.S. from 19th century religious groups to various subcultures, including commune dwellers, Rastafarians, Buddhists, punks, ecofeminists, and Black nationalists, to the watershed moment of Francis Moore LaPay's book, Diet for a Small Planet, published in 1971. Kennedy also interrogates more recent trends like wellness culture and meatless Big Macs, considering how the radical origins of not eating meat are becoming obscured as veganism hits the mainstream. A rejoinder to questions about the efficacy of personal choices in the fight against climate change and social injustice, No Meat Required argues for the critical importance of biodiversity, local agriculture and local economies, and offers a holistic vision of food consumption and production for both the present and the future. Thank you so much, Alicia, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So, Alicia, I wondered if we could start with kind of your conversion moment, even though I know that narratives of conversion are things that you kind of push back against, which I really appreciate in the book. But just that moment that you describe early on where you say you look down at your plate, saw meat on it, and did not see food. And can you just talk about that moment and then kind of what you processed as you realized that you were going to be making a shift to a vegetarian or flexivegan kind of diet. <laughs> right. Well, I actually, the conversion for me was from being an omnivore to being a full-on very strict vegan, like night and day, basically. I mean, I say night and day, but it was a long process of kind of seeing how I felt eating meatless weeks or, or meatless days and seeing that like, oh, I do feel better with this. This is more aligned with not just like my ethics and my concern for the environment, but it's also more in line with making myself feel good on a day-to-day basis. And so when I started to not see meat as food it was quite specific and it wasn't actually on my plate. I think just the plate as a metaphor, I suppose, in food writing is useful. And so I remember being at the Italian grocer, like the pork store in my hometown, and like a case of all the meat that I would have once found so delicious. I was like, oh, those are animals. That's animal flesh. And that was a real, it wasn't a consciousness raising moment, but it was the moment when I realized that something in me had changed. But that change also means that There's like significant, and this is, I think, the hardest thing for many people, and we're going to bracket for a second the kind of political identity that gets cathected to our like food choices, but it also does mean in a very real way, you're not going to be eating the same way that the people around you, the people you love, the people who you feed and who feed you, you're not eating the same way. Can you talk a little bit how about how you navigated that 
communal rupture, if maybe that's not too tendentious of a way to describe it. (laughs) I think I navigated it kind of badly, let's say. Not badly. I just... I didn't give anyone a lot of room to process it in my life. Anyone who was close to me, I was like, this is it for me. And you're just going to have to deal with it, which I think is kind of a necessary part of the process. I was also, you know, in my mid-20s, so that was also part of it. It was part of like staking a claim on my own agency and autonomy as much as it was changing how I ate. And so it was difficult. But the way that I and the reason I'm a food writer is the way that I navigated it was by baking (laughs) and by like learning how to make vegan baked goods that tasted really good. And that turned into a whole like small vegan baking business, et cetera. But I think that the reason I was able to eventually get everyone in my life to sort of understand it was not through any sort of intellectual or, you know, philosophical conversation or about bringing them statistics on land use and how meat and industrial meat and dairy are so destructive environmentally. It was through like cookies and cakes, 100%. Like it was a very, very simple way to make people understand that, oh, eating this way doesn't mean you're going to starve. And it doesn't mean that you have to give up everything that you've ever loved in your life. And so for me, a lot of talking about this issue with folks is always saying, feed people to make them understand. And like, obviously don't feed them. I don't know. <laughs> you have There is an element of needing to be a good cook here. But, you know, feed people something and it can change their mind. And it really is that kind of simple and that kind of like animal element to it is where the root of a kind of ethical or philosophical change can happen in people. So for me, it was just about cookies and cakes. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a great entry for any uh, skeptical vegan is delicious vegan baked goods. But I want to talk about the legacy of veganism and vegetarianism in the United States and also, it goes against the grain, but it seems that the focus on meat in the U.S. is pretty singular as well, and that is unusual probably across the world. So maybe you could talk about the rise of meat as the main course in the United States and how a kind of resistance here began to form into what's now a modern vegetarian and, and vegan movement. A lot of vegan and vegetarian movements prior to the 60s or prior especially to the 1971 Diet for a Small Planet moment were centered around religious reasons, like spiritual reasons for giving up meat. It wasn't like a real secular movement. And in the U.S., especially, meat consumption was so... It was a big focal point of people's lives, of people's eating lives, because it was such a different way of eating compared to the rest of the world. Most people in the rest of the world were eating meat as celebration, as something to be hard won. The meat meal, the meat at the center of the table was something that had to be earned and worked for, not earned calorically, but earned and through work. And so that is something that the U.S. system of meat rearing and ranching in the West changed dramatically. And so once we're able to rear cattle in mass and process cattle in mass into meat and then store it in refrigerated trains and get it to everybody and get it to every supermarket, people who had previously thought of meat as something special were like, oh, now I get to live like a rich person and eat this food of affluence every single day of my life. And people literally wrote letters to say, you know, we can eat meat every day here. It's a big part of the myth of the American dream is that You can eat meat all the time and suffer no ill consequence or it's very invisible. It's, you know, as Carol J. Adams puts it, the animal is the absent referent and so also is the laborer in the meat processing plant. So too is the land that is being misused to grow so much corn and soy in order just to feed these the livestock. And so it's this whole invisible machinery upon which this idea of constant affluence and constant meat consumption was built. And so it's really, really difficult to make people change that behavior because it is so tied to this like intrinsic sense of being American, but also these senses of masculinity and senses of domination of land and of animals. And it's linked to, yeah, this just sense of 
being well off and being fed well. And so when you take meat out of the equation, it's a very, it can be very stressful to try and change your thinking around that. And why do you think the U.S. subsidizes meat production in the way it does? I mean, is that a political lobby trick that just has cycles and cycles of regeneration? Or why is it such a subsidized business? It's because it it has that lobby, yes, a powerful lobby, but it's also because I think it's something that it's so difficult to change. It's so difficult to change because it's intrinsic, because meat is widely available, because it is produced in this invisible way, and it is subsidized by the government, and it does have these powerful lobbies. But at the same time, if all of a sudden the powerful lobbies went away and like we cast a magic spell on Congress and everybody to say where they were like, we're going to stop subsidizing meat and dairy to this extent. It's very destructive. And then tomorrow everybody went into their stop and shop or their supermarket and there was no meat there. That would be, you know, it's really a problem of imagination and how we think of meat as this necessary thing. And so, you know, I'm always writing about it or talking about it in a way where it's like, we have to solve this imagination problem that people have around meat and its necessity and how abundant it should be in our lives before we can really tackle the political problem because it's two-pronged. It's, you know, obviously we want to tackle the political problem of these subsidies that are for such a destructive industry. But at the same time, most people who eat meat are going to have, you know, a conniption if tomorrow there's no beef in the grocer's fridge. I remember when I read Fuchsia Dunlop's Every Grain of Rice years ago, which is a very essential kind of Sichuan cooking cookbook, the idea of using meat as flavoring was something that maybe I would have recognized if I thought about what, like, a table looks like at, like, a Sichuan restaurant, but not something that I necessarily would have thought when I, you know, like I wanted, you know, all the orange chicken and stuff like that, right? We're trained to see that. And so kind of filling up that hole on the plate, I think is something that's always difficult. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about, I love that you approach vegetarianism and veganism as a way to learn and to showcase ingredients or to learn different ways of pulling things together. Because I think one of the things that the various times that I've tried, and I'm sure this is true of many listeners right now, when I've tried to go vegetarian, I'm always being constantly reminded of the thing I just gave up. And that's because I have unchicken nuggets or an impossible burger or something that is imitating meat in a very direct way. And which for somebody trying to kind of transition, it always feels like it's reminding you in a worse way of the thing you had to give up. And also, I think that a lot of those highly processed vegan and vegetarian foods are not actually good for the environment either, or necessarily for our bodies. So I wonder if there's, because obviously this has been mainstreamed a lot more since 1971. So I'm curious about what you recommend for people that are first starting to make this kind of transition. How should they rethink vegetarianism or veganism? It's really interesting and it is hard. I think that those products, it's really a double-edged sword in so many ways because on the one hand, it makes people feel like it's an easier transition, but I think by making it easier, it also kind of blocks people from thinking in new ways about what their plate can look like, what their meals can look like, how to build around different nutrients, because it really does come down to, of course, you shouldn't just change your diet willy-nilly without maybe consulting someone on what your personal needs are and what your personal nutritional needs are and how to meet them best. But at the same time, if you do want to give up meat, I think it's really a useful exercise to not ask that your food tastes still like meat. It obviously requires one to really enjoy vegetables. It requires some ingenuity and looking at different cookbooks from different cultures, you know, such as from different Chinese cuisines or other cuisines of the Middle East and North Africa and and even the Mediterranean region where there simply will be less meat by design in these, in these cookbooks. It's not going to be everything is about a, you know, a roast chicken or a steak. And It does require that kind of level of commitment, unfortunately. I think one thing that is kind of necessary is, and this is, I guess, what I see as my job, is lowering the bar of that commitment and, like, trying to, like, ease people into it in a way that, like, makes it more enticing and easier. But it does 
again, like you're saying, when you're so used to this one type of thing being the thing that you eat, it's very, very difficult to reframe that. And I do think that these kinds of products can be a distraction from people finding this more like abundant and varietal way of eating. At the same time, finding that way of eating requires a lot of work. It requires a lot of forethought. We're like very much set up against eating in a way that prioritizes vegetables and less processed proteins. And so it's so complicated to talk about because it's so, there's all these forces at work against people eating in a way that doesn't prioritize meat or meat substitutes. Along the lines of this kind of mainstreaming of fake meat, which is seems in some ways, yes, it's aligned with the vegetarian movement, but it's also different because it doesn't connect to the larger vision of land use and biodiversity because the soy products that are made for these fake meats are probably grown in a not great way. It's also a monocrop. And it's also moving away from the political aspects of vegetarianism that you point out here in the book and that a lot of the book is about. And something that I thought was so interesting is, right, that we've moved now from saying vegetarian or vegan to plant-based And it's become this wellness thing that's very elitist. And even, you know, Erwan is a great example that started off as a macrobiotic health food store and has now become kind of like a very Hollywood, decadent, expensive place where the whole kind of face of healthy eating has completely changed. And so, you know, this leads me to other questions, but maybe you could talk a little bit first about the difference of the kind of more holistic vegan vegetarian movement and now how it's become plant-based, you know, like wellness. What's that divide? Well, it's really interesting because when I was vegan or when I was a more when I was more strident about these things, I really hated the phrase plant-based. And it's always been really, really hard to figure out the origins of plant-based. But then I found out, apparently, that it was kind of born out of John Robbins' Diet for a New America in the 90s and was about trying to get people on this wave of eating less meat and less dairy or none at all without the baggage of the word vegan, which makes complete sense, of course, because it really does vegetarian, vegan, they carry the baggage of, of you're a humorless person, you live an ascetic life, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was born of that. And the interesting thing is that it doesn't really move out of a more activist or kind of like food lobbyist sphere until the fake meats like Impossible and Beyond come into the scene in like the mid 2010s. And it's really interesting to know that they kind of co-opted it in order to sell these products. And then as it emerged and kind of overtook vegan as the go-to phrase for this way of eating, it did kind of take a little bit of the teeth out of what it means. And But at the same time, it's also important to know that taking the teeth out of it makes it more accessible and more doable to people. Again, it's like, how do we want to look at it in terms of what purpose we want to get to? It's interesting, though, because I plant-based has definitely taken over and it has been used in like nonsensical ways, I think. Like like describing a cookie as plant-based is so bizarre to me <laughs> because it's like, what does that mean? Like, are there eggs in it? Are there like we don't really know? Like when something's vegan, we know what it means versus plant-based. Sometimes it means vegan, sometimes it doesn't. So you have no real sense of what it means, and it's very wishy-washy in how it's used. It really it's like the word natural, like it has no real function meaning anymore, but it signifies something to people. And so it is difficult because it did have that, you know, important origin, but it's come to have this really baseless, it gives one the sense of an Erewhon and a Balenciaga smoothie. So Exactly. Well, maybe, you know, the teeth of veganism is the sexy part to me. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, and especially beyond, I think, yes, we all think of communes and the farm in Tennessee, which you write about and Molly Katzen, you know, Moosewood, whatever, but there's a lot more there and a lot of it that is not white. So could you talk about those origins, especially within Black culture, Indigenous culture? Yeah, it's really interesting to see how 
a lot of the ways in which veganism or vegetarianism in the U.S. specifically has been narrativized has been as this very white thing. And we see all of these vegan or vegetarian cookbooks and movements happening concurrently with the civil rights movement in the 1960s before people were going to the communes in reaction to the Vietnam War. But I think this narrativization has served to kind of demean veganism because if we do look at the reality, it's been very diverse forever. And also in terms of indigenous veganism, there's been this narrative that, oh, this food isn't vegan. The way we eat traditionally isn't vegan. And that's not always going to be the case. There's tons of diversity among diets, no matter what. And going back to talking about how meat became so important in the U.S., in a lot of places, meat wasn't central to the diet because it couldn't be. And so there were all these traditions built around that. And obviously, that's a much more sustainable way to live. And so we've seen this narrative be broken down over especially the last 10 years. You know, we have the work of Bryant Terry, of course, of Veggie Mijas. We have just so much also scholarship on veganism by indigenous, by vegans of color as well that have served to kind of break this down. In the last couple of years, the Vegetable Forward Cookbook winner at the James Beard Awards, it's been the Korean vegan, it's been the vegan Chinese kitchen. So like, it's just changing quite rapidly for people to understand this. But at the same time, it's interesting because I write about going to the Bronx when I was reviewing restaurants for the Village Voice and like going to get a dal patty at this Ital Bodega, which it comes from the Rastafari movement. And we think of, oh, all this plant-based seafood is this new thing, but they had soy shrimp in the freezer case. And it was made by like a Chinatown-based company. That was the moment in my head where I was just like, how did we get this notion that like vegans are always white, that like veganism is a white thing when it's like, this completely vegan grocer is serving these soy shrimps that come from Chinatown. And so it's interesting to see that actually taking shape in the mainstream now where other people are having this realization that like this was never a white thing. This was never a white only thing. It just got narrativized that way. It got popularized in that way, obviously, because whiteness kind of subsumes things. And so all of a sudden you have, you know, what is vegan comfort food becomes white vegan comfort food and it becomes defined in this way. But yeah, it's really interesting how much that is changing now to be aligned with actual reality. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Alicia Kennedy, author of No Meat Required, We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I have Blake Butler on the line. Blake Butler's latest book is called Molly, and he's here for a book recommendation. Yes, hi. I'd like to recommend a book called Last Words from Montmartre by Chiu Mao Jin. She is a Taiwanese novelist who took her life in 1995. So this is a kind of hybrid memoir. It's She was a novelist, but this book, and this book takes fictional forms, but it also takes the form of letters that she's writing to her lover. And then she finishes it right before she takes her life. So it's a really wildly variable feeling text. It has a lot of different styles from the extremity of her situation coming out in kind of these intimate revelations she gives to the person she's the character is writing to. But it's also got she writes about keeping bunnies and kind of bizarre. So it's a really unusual text in that the author is both being candid and playing games with you. And I, and I really like the mix of things it brings. Wow, I've never heard of that book before. How did you find it? I just bumped into it and I was, it's a beautiful, like the text has pictures of her face that are kind of, it's just a haunting looking book, I guess, one of those that you pick up. And and yeah, once you start reading it, it's almost confusing because it's got this like really casualness on one hand, but then, like I said, it changes style so quickly that you're, you're almost not sure what's going on. I think if you didn't know the context of her life, you might even think like, what the heck is this? Because <laughs> she's an innovative experimental novelist, but um I really love the mishmash of real life and fantasy and like this kind of I don't care anymore 
it's sad and sickening that she gets to that state, but it's also a revelation that she's able to share what it's like to be in the headspace of someone who's close to the edge like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That sounds amazing. Can you tell us the title and author one more time? It's Last Words from Montmartre by Chiu Mao Jin. Thank you so much, Blake. Thank you. That was Blake Butler. His latest book is called Molly. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Alicia Kennedy, author of No Meat Required. One of the other things that you chart throughout the book is actually the books that have made a difference, and those are largely cookbooks. So we talked about Eating for a Small Planet. Can you talk about or just name a couple of the most influential books that you think really shifted? That's obviously one. It's a watershed moment from 1971. But kind of what books really shaped the course of modern mainstreaming? And, you know, if you can also talk a little bit about maybe like books that you wish had like shaped the course of that modern mainstreaming to kind of get around some of the racialized quagmires that we've been talking about. Who gets to publish books is always a fraught. It's very fraught. I definitely think, of course, people always go back to, yes, Diet for a Small Planet and, and Francis Moore LePay. They go back to the Moosewood Cookbook and Molly Katzen. They go back to Deborah Madison and Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone, which I think was definitely a watershed moment. And she has really always been kind of the North Star of vegetarian cooking that is simply good cooking that prioritizes really good food. And even, you know, books on California cuisine can't leave out greens in the Bay Area, which really was credited as being the first good vegetarian restaurant by like real restaurant critics. And so I see her work as so significant. I think the work, someone who hasn't gotten enough credit is Miyoko Shinner, who wrote The Now and Zen Epicure, which came out, the first edition came out in 1990. It was published by the Farms Press, which is interesting. And she wasn't just doing vegetarian food. She was doing vegan food and being really influenced by French technique, by her Japanese background. She is the, for me, I really always go to her when I want to understand a vegan approach and also to historicize ingredients that came up because she's always really been ahead of the curve in terms of using nuts or fermenting things. And she did have this vegan cheese company and basically a vegan dairy company. And she got kind of pushed out recently. But her books are are a completely significant moment. Then, of course, the books I wish were the more influential were the Bloodroot cookbooks from the Bloodroot Collective in Connecticut. I mean, the food is good, of course, but also for the fact that they really mixed poetry and philosophy and theory and like all of this feminist thinking into a book with recipes in a really radical way as eco-feminists who were, they were vegetarian because that was like, if they were going to be feminist, they had to be vegetarian. And that was that strain of thought that they were in. And then, of course, the work of Issa Chandra Moskowitz in this century is like, so important to getting people to eat vegan. Vegan with a Vengeance was my first cookbook that was vegan. Another person I wish was more influential who has a lot of connection to Bloodroot is Lagusta Yearwood, who is a chocolatier in upstate New York, or I would call it upstate because I'm from Long Island. It's in the Hudson Valley. And she, you know, has this cookbook called Sweet and Salty that I think people can learn so much about vegan confectionery from and thinking about vegan dishes not as replacement, but as a whole new way of thinking. A new cookbook that, sorry, I can go on and on about cookbook, but A New Way to Bake by Philip Khoury is, I think, going to be the, like, it's going to be the foundation of, like, a whole new approach to vegan baking. It's really exciting. Amazing. Could you go back and talk a little bit about Bloodroot and the connection between veganism and ecofeminism, which I was very fascinated by? My introduction to this was definitely through Lagusta Yearwood, whose blog I got really obsessed with. And then I found out she worked at Bloodroot. So I went to Bloodroot in Connecticut and interviewed the founders, Selma and Noel. And they were telling me that, you know, when they became feminists, when they had this consciousness raising moment in the 70s, that the people around them were like, you can't be a feminist and serve meat. But this is definitely part of a strain of this eco-feminist philosophy, which is from 
France, and I can't, I can never remember the name of the French theorist who wrote the book, but she was basically saying, and this was something that, that spread really well across feminisms then, was that the way we dominate the earth and the way we dominate animals is akin to how the patriarchy treats, views, and dominates women. And in the U.S., the text that's the most important and influential on this is Carol J. Adams' The Sexual Politics of Meat, which really goes deep into how this plays out, especially around food and meat and imagery. And so, yeah, they are part of that strain of feminism and vegetarian or vegan approach. It's funny because I was watching again recently this Joaquin Phoenix Academy Award acceptance speech where he goes on this (laughs) vegan rant. And I thought if you weren't familiar with any of the ideas, it would seem insane because he's talking about when we inseminate a cow and then we take her milk. And it's it's almost funny the way he's doing it. But what he's saying is is true in this kind of politics of reproduction and using the body of a cow solely for reproduction. Of course, I could see how it would resonate with feminism. In that way of the larger vision of, I mean, I know it's different for everyone, but just to go back again to the kind of larger vision, and it seems that you have that as well, for how you conceive not just of eating meat, but really how you want to seed a kind of biodiversity, also a strong class consciousness where food needs to be available to all. Can you just talk a little bit about your larger vision beyond just not eating meat? What is your vision for how food should work throughout the world, not just in this country? It's hard to say how it should work everywhere. I always say, and I I think, obviously the book is called No Meat Required, (laughs) but at the same time, I also realize that there are places in the world where it makes more sense to consume meat, perhaps. But in those places, it's not going to be done in the factory farmed industrial way that it's done in the U.S. And so for me, it's really about ending the industrialization of meat and dairy more than it is about everybody changing 100% to be vegan or 100% to be vegetarian. It's more about we have to end this industrial system. And only when we do that and only when we reconfigure our regional food systems to be less industrial on every scale, do we really understand how we can move forward with a food system that is equitable? And then, of course, part of my and people are always like, oh, but how do you make how do you make food affordable for everybody? And also, I mean, a lot of when you're talking about like making food available, you also, it goes back to the issue of changing how you eat in a way that prioritizes bio and culinary diversity means having more time. It doesn't just mean that the food is available. It means you have more time to prepare it. You have more time to think about it, consider it, to find where your pleasures and joys are in in that process. And so that's a whole new system of living as well. But when we are subsidizing industrial meat and dairy with billions and billions of dollars every year, if we took that away and we use those billions of billions of dollars to do new things in food, to not just bring that money to small farmers, because yes, yield is important if we're going to feed a lot of people, but like to just reconfigure the way food works in, and I really do just talk about the United States because it's very difficult for me. I just can't speak for anywhere else and I wouldn't want to. But if we took those billions of dollars and we decided to build an equitable food system focused on biodiversity, focused on regional ecologies and, you know, doing our best to minimize food waste and that sort of thing, that would be revolutionary. That would be, you know, incredible. And the money is there. People are always like, well, where would the money be to do the, the money is there if we just stop using it to foster a industrial animal agriculture that is killing the planet and is terrible for us. And it's terrible for animals and it's terrible for workers. And so it's really about figuring out how we can change people's minds toward redistribution of resources toward an equitable food system, figuring out what that would look like, figuring out what we really need and what real quantities. So we're not contributing, you know, I mean, the U.S. throws out like half the food it produces. So it's just what are we doing, really? And when will we take a step back and ask that question and figure out what we can do? But of course, that doesn't serve a lot of corporate agribusiness interests. So 
But also another figure that you mentioned is how little the meat industry, how little calories it really accounts for, though it takes 80% of the land. Yes, and that's a figure that hasn't changed since Diet for a Small Planet. 80% of land use, agricultural land, is used to provide only 18% of calories. Maybe that's changed in some small percentages over the years, but like that's the figure. Like We're using all this land to provide a fantasy for everybody where, you know, we can eat hamburgers every day and we can eat bacon for breakfast every day and nothing's going wrong. Everything's great. And it's like, no, actually, this is built on delusion. (laughs) Yeah, I think one of the difficulties with what you're talking about, and you get at this a couple of times in the book, is these are humongous systems, right? And (laughs) And I think that what we're talking about also is not just those humongous systems in which we all participate. We're all very familiar with the like, in late, 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 late times 20 capitalism. Like, do we have any choice? Is, are we able to to act ethically within a corrupt system or an unethical system? But I wanted to, because I think this is another thing that people struggle with when they want to make these changes, is it's just me, how much is my change going to matter? I can't go all the way to being vegan. Like, that's just not possible. You know, I can't imagine that. I can't fathom it. But if I do meatless Mondays, does that even matter? Does it have any impact? So I want to ask you a little bit about how you think of the grandness of the problem and then on the granular you know, level of individual choice. And so can even... I'm fishing maybe a little bit for a reason to do it, but can even those small changes, like no meat Mondays or things like that, can those at scale actually make a difference at a time when it feels like everything is imminent collapse environmentally? (laughs) Well, I think that when you think of your individual choices and just yourself and not yourself as part of something, then yes, it feels very insurmountable. But I do think that Meatless Monday makes a difference because it gets us into a headspace where we start to think about these things and we start to reframe our plates and our meals around this idea. And I think that there is so much potential for that Meatless Monday to turn into a Meatless Tuesday, a Meatless Wednesday, and you just start consuming less meat, you start consuming less dairy, and that is a win and that is important. And so I do think that lifestyle changes are so significant and it's also significant that we engage with other people in our lives on these lifestyle choices and what impact they have. Of course, if you're still going to eat meat and dairy and have the means, finding a butcher that you trust who's getting meat from ranchers and farmers that you trust is ideal. Finding dairy farms that tread lightly and aren't doing what Joaquin Phoenix was talking about are (laughs) ideal if you're going to eat meat and dairy. You know, if you're getting eggs, find a a local farmer who has good conditions for those hens. And so these are things that take a little bit more forethought, but they are also, if you're not feeling moved to go vegetarian or go vegan, these little changes make a huge difference. They also are more supportive, ideally, of local and regional food economies, which in the end does also make your local regional food system less susceptible to problems of climate change. If you have farmers who are using really good agroecological practices, who aren't using a lot of inputs such as fertilizer, aren't relying on a lot of machinery and equipment that's fueled by gasoline, you're supporting the world you want to live in, you know, the world that we do want to exist. And that has a powerful effect, even if it's individual and even if it just ripples out into your local community and local friends and family, because I think that that does have that effect of changing how people think about things, you know? And I think that that's a very powerful tool that shouldn't be discounted. I think that there's been a lot of conversation that has discounted those things as powerful. And whose interest does it serve to say it doesn't matter, you know? And whose interest does it serve to say it's completely the same to buy apples from Chile in December as it is to go pick apples at an orchard in September, you know, it's about reframing how whose interests these sorts of decisions serve, where the power is, and how at any juncture you can agitate for the world you do you do want to see in terms of your food. You make this point in the book that I think is very important, which is that, you know, food may be political, but by its very nature, it's also highly personal. And it reminds me the closest 
other example I could think of is something like sex, where it's like there's all these politics around sex, but when you really get to it, it is this realm that is unbidden and it's, you know, someone's desires are very idiosyncratic and how those play out and who are we to then legislate what is allowed and what's not. But it, it seems to me almost the way that you might like slowly creep into porn and change um, what's depicted in porn, like how you would do that with taste and what people come to expect and what is what's comforting and nostalgic for people too because that's so much of what food is a is a part of so i wonder how you see that is that like a hearts and minds thing how you wage that war what kind of food you think appeal even this like fake meat that looks just like meat as being that's what people are going to as opposed to for some of us like what might actually be really comforting is like white rice and tofu you know that touches a deep note for me but maybe for someone else it wouldn't so are there foods that you think do that or how do we start to do that? I mean, I think we start to do that through, and it sounds almost self-aggrandizing, but I do think that like food influencers and food media have a role to play here in what becomes desirable. Because if you continue to put the meat and steak on the cover, if the barbecue issue continues to focus, you know, on ribs and not provide maybe some sort of alternative to that. If the balance of recipes tends to be in major publications over 50% meat versus like usually like 40% vegetarian, which is still a good, that's good. It's that's progress. But at the same time, if, if it continues that way, if what's most desirable continues to be the meat, then nothing's going to change for people because it really is a hearts and like for so many reasons, it's about changing people's minds about what really is desirable food. And so I do think that magazines and, and cookbooks and, and all these all these different lifestyle media have such a huge role to play in terms of changing how that desire is constructed and built up for people. Because it's so easy to change. I mean, watch how people started eating Brussels sprouts once they were like properly roasted and glazed in maple syrup. It's like things can change in this way if we just push and maybe you would also tell us a little bit about, I know you live in Puerto Rico and a lot of the food there is imported, 85%, I think you said in your book. So what's it like to keep vegetarian on the island and what are some of the things that are grown in Puerto Rico or where you live that you really love? Well, it's interesting because I go to a farmer's market every weekend, but I also like have to go to Costco to stock up on certain things. And I think that people, it's useful to show that, that like the produce is fresh and local and a lot of the staples tend to be the same staples you might get somewhere else. It's kind of the food system is so interdependent and intertwined. But it's interesting to work with a very different seasonal system. It's interesting because even when 85% of food is imported, there are so many people who do grow their own food and grow their own breadfruit and their own plantains and bananas and fruits and, and things like that. And so a lot of the time it'll be passion fruit season and I'll be bombarded with passion. Like, obviously, because I can cook, people know that I'll know what to do with it. Or I'll be bombarded with lemons or I'll be bombarded with mangoes. And that's a really interesting thing that I never really experienced in New York. Obviously, zucchini sometimes in the summer. People, your neighbors would be like, I grew way too much zucchini. But like the variety of fruits and the variety of people who casually grow food is very interesting. Of course, the people I buy my greens from every week and my eggplant and tomatoes and and all sorts of like staple produce from every week. You know, it's interesting also to see their the differences in their seasons. When it rains, the bok choy is very skinny at the end or because it's straining to get the sun. And there's times when it's too hot for greens to grow. Like it's interesting because in the summer here, it's really hard to eat a salad <laughs> if you're eating local produce because it's simply too hot. So like you have to navigate these kinds of different different styles of approaching different necessities of the local agriculture. But I like these peculiarities because you start to feel a lot more embedded in place because of that because you are dealing with surplus mangoes and lemons and you're and you're trying to figure out what to eat for lunch when you have no greens and and that sort of thing. So it's really it's an interesting way of navigating food. I mean what you're talking about is also being deeply connected to the way that 
actual food is grown, produced, and distributed before it gets to your plate. And I think the, for lack of a better word, like the invisibilizing of that process, which is part of how capital functions with everything that we buy, is part of what makes it this is an obvious one, but it's that we can expect pineapples every month of the year. Like, that's not actually natural. It's not, you know, same thing <laughs> with, like, tomatoes. When you start going to farmer's markets, you're like, oh, actually, there's my favorite, the pineapple tomato. It only <laughs> exists. It, it's only in season for one month, I think. And it's the same with uh, guavas, for example. My husband's Cuban, so there's lots of guava in not real forms, usually in, in our house. <laughs> but I'm wondering if there was like, because both making this shift to a more, let's say, without worrying about the freightedness of that term, a plant-based diet, but also to being more connected to the food that you're eating. What's like an example of a dish that like either for you or when you talk to people who are kind of beginning this process and transition, what was the dish that made you either just wake up and be like, oh, it can actually be just pure pleasure or a dish that made you feel like this is really connecting me to what this food is and to where I am, where my place is on this planet? It actually happened when I was baking in New York on Long Island, and there was a farm in Riverhead called Golden Earthworm Farm, and I would sell my baked goods across from their produce every weekend and I would buy their produce. And one time I was doing empanadas for like a vegan pop-up in the city and I got all the ingredients to make sofrito for them mm. from this farm. And like learning that food where I grew up was like a real thing that came from the ground and like people, you know, planted it and they grew it and they picked it up. I was like, are you kidding me? That was a real moment of clarity in terms of like, all of this is real. All of this comes from someone and comes from someone's hands. And the responsibility of that, the weight of that is very real. And I felt it since I ordered those, that produce and made the sofrito. And that was definitely a moment for me. And then you know, also, I mean, being here in Puerto Rico all the time is a moment of like deep clarity of how how beholden you are to the earth and how fragile it is in terms of your food security. Well, on thinking about delicious vegan empanadas, maybe we should end there because I'm I'm getting hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Alicia, for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. That was Alicia Kennedy. Her new book is called No Meat Required, The Cultural History and Culinary Future of Plant-Based Eating. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.